Welcome to Season 3 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Sunil, I'm, uh, I'm staring at CNBC right now in, in my office, and uh, the Dow's down like, I don't know, five and a half, almost six percentage points today. It's crazy. Like the robots are running wild. Yeah. And we talk about that and, and a bunch of other stuff, you know, algo trading with our guest today, Samil Shot. And so I've known Samil for maybe around 11 years. And there's a funny story, which is um, when I was first starting off in Silicon Valley, Samil was the first person to interview me for a press, like a formal press interview. Wait, for real? It's like a, your first interview? That's a crazy coincidence. Literally ever. And so, you know, he is, he's what I would describe as sort of like a Silicon Valley renaissance man. He, he could be a professional chef. He is a, you know, he's a venture capitalist. He's been in early stage startups himself. Just a really interesting, well-rounded human being. This is a really, really uh, fun and interesting conversation. We hope you enjoy Hey, thanks for coming in on the podcast today. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you both. Uh, you know, Sunil's an old friend, and it's great to meet you, Yasha. That's, and uh, you got to send me your, your setup there. I, um, I uh, one, appreciate you saying that. Sunil, before you hopped on, we were talking about how, you know, like we're spending all day on Zoom, and you got to get a good hookup. And I borrowed one of our kids' DSLRs a couple days ago and got it up and running. So now I look like I'm ready for broadcast other than a bunch of oily forehead stuff, which I don't know how to deal with that. But, uh, the uh, issue is actually this is a startup idea, but like someone should just sell this stuff in a pack because I went to Amazon and someone gave me some recommendations and I was in Amazon for like 20 minutes and I was like, okay, there's like seven of the Sony cameras there all by different sellers and then I got to buy the Elgato cam link. And I just yeah, <laughs> totally. I, I was the same way too. And then I have a friend that I used to, I worked at Mozilla for half a decade and a friend of mine that runs R&D was like, here's the setup. This is what you need. I'm like, all right, I can get all this stuff. I can figure it out. We'll, we'll do that next. Um, I, uh, I do appreciate you being here. And I'm curious, are you from the Bay Area? Are you a native? No, I'm a native East Coaster kind of in and around New York City. Um, but I've lived on and off in California for the last almost 20 years. So I think you know, pretty soon I'll have spent most of my life in California. So yeah, yeah. try to, try to fake being a California kid. I, I wish I grew up here, but I did not. Did, um, so I appreciate you saying that. I, I um, grew up in Oregon and at a young age had thought that California was where I wanted to be, but it was Los Angeles first. And that's where I really wanted to go. Was there a point in time where you were a kid growing up in the East Coast and you're like, I got to get out West. I got to be in the Bay Area. Um, <clears throat> yes and no, actually. Yeah, it's funny. Um, we have a small family in the U.S. And my mom has two sisters and one of them uh, had a California bug in her, her younger sister. So she moved out to the LA area, more inland. And so I visited a couple times and that was great. And I thought it was California. And then we had taken a trip, family trip to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, but I didn't like think of the two as so different. It was just California, uh, in my mind. Yeah. And then in, in college, I had a couple of really good friends who were in the Bay area at either Berkeley or Stanford. And I would visit. And I think I visited, like the spring break of my senior year in college. And I was like, you know, I got to get here at some point. Yeah. Um, and so like two and a half years later, I finally made it there. What, what was the thing that 
you uh, did to make yourself move out here? Like, was it accidental? You kind of like the area and you moved out here. You said, I got to go here because this is where the industry that I care about is, or I just liked it. I had a, I had a couple friends out here. Um, I'd spent time out there. Um, if I think back of it, it's crazy. I was living in downtown Manhattan and I moved. I remember I took a JetBlue flight. JetBlue was just starting uh, into Oakland. And I flew from JFK to Oakland with a one-way ticket with a bag. I still like can remember the bag and like the luggage tag. And um, yeah, I moved like maybe a week before September 11th. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was just a crazy time. And then, you know, I didn't know what the startup boom was or anything like that. I mean, I didn't really understand it. So like people were talking about the local economy, but I was like hanging out with friends and just trying to find my way. I wasn't really like paying attention. Um, were growing up on the East Coast, living on the East Coast, does that mean that you were a stockbroker or something before you came out here? <laughs> no, no. I thought I would go to law school um, and, you know, actually applied and, and went down that road. And I worked for the Manhattan VA, actually. And then I was like moonlighting at restaurants and like bartending in New York City. And then I thought, I don't know, I just like broke up with a girlfriend and decided my lease was up in the summer and then just time to move. Mm, this is a this is a theme in the conversations that we have, and Cindy and I talk about this a lot. The the uh, the breakup or the moving with a boyfriend or a girlfriend ends up being a big driver for the Bay Area, and and uh, there's something yeah. to that. It wasn't like um it wasn't like a cataclysmic breakup or anything. It was just more like I didn't I wasn't going to go to law school. I wasn't dating this person. Didn't have a career. Um, so I just thought, hey, yeah. <laughs> time to go. So, Mel, you know, we've known each other for a long time. Uh, I think 11 years now, something like that. Um, yeah. And the way I try to describe you to others is you're somewhat of a renaissance man. I mean, you've done a lot of different things. You've, like you said, I mean, and, you know, you're, you're cooking a lot more during, uh, during the pandemic, it seems. What, what's the best thing that you've cooked? And then I got a bunch of other questions. Yeah. Well, I, I got into cooking because I was cooking in college to make money, and then I liked it. And then... I cooked a little bit in New York and then I tried to be a cook here after reading like kitchen confidential, but that was like a different story. Um, but I think the thing that I've made, <clears throat> I've honestly haven't made anything elaborate. It's more like comfort food. Um, so probably the best thing, <clears throat> the best thing I did was food related, which is I finally cleaned my grill outside for like two days over the weekend like bare knuckles, like into different parts of the grill. Um, pretty nasty, um, but it felt really good. So that's my contribution to the to, to cooking. And everything else has been on the grill or like more comfort food. I haven't had like the time and space to cook like something elaborate. Oh, I did roast the duck though, which was, I haven't done that in like, I don't know, a really long time. And I realized that like the duck is just super, it, it's like a huge gift, like, the duck legs, the duck fat, the duck broth from the bones, the actual duck itself. Like I was, I was a super fan, like 15 bucks goes a long way. <laughs> That's no joke. So now we're going to, we're going to do a hard pivot from, uh, from, from cooking and, and all of this stuff. And we're recording this on June 3rd, 2020. And we just have to address what a tumultuous week it's been in the world. Um, we're, we're living through strange times between 
the George Floyd murder and ensuing protests, the, you know, Twitter and now snap, um, kind of flagging of, of Trump content. Um, you know, I'm just interested in your take. What, you know, first I'll, I'll divide the questions across two, two categories here. What is the state of social media right now, Samil? And I ask you this because you are, you have a pretty significant Twitter following. I would even go so far as to say you are a Twitter celebrity, even though you might bristle at that. What's going on with social media right now? Just kind of explain to us your thoughts. <clears throat> well, I think that there, you know, we should define that up front because when people say social media, I think they, they think, you know, there's a large group of people that just think, um, you know, hey, it's Facebook and Twitter uh, and maybe some Reddit. And then there's all this other stuff that's like maybe not as broadcast like Snap or Telegram groups or WhatsApp groups. Um, and so I think for, for to answer your question, I want to be clear. I'm talking about the broadcast networks where you can kind of kind of capture, click and publish, you know, and distribute to, to a large audience. Fair, fair. And I will, I will further define the question to make it less open-ended uh, as well. Yeah, I thought you yeah. did a nice job there. So with the broadcast networks, yeah. do yeah, you think I we think, are um, going to see mass regulation? Are we going to see mass regulation or is this just uh, going to continue? Well, as, as I, That I don't know. I think we should spend a couple of minutes and see where it goes. I mean, my, my thought process is that, um, you know, if you look at a place like China, and Peter Thiel gave a pretty good interview on this is like, you know, people that run that country are pretty sharp, um, are not perfect, but I think that they look through pieces of like Russia opening and Germany reunifying and sort of saying that they wanted like some level of like a transition to more capitalism, capitalist economy with like some more mobility and, and freedom of movement of their citizenry, but they didn't want to do it alongside having uh, information just be disseminated out. And I think uh, the rest of the world took a different view of like more open networks and all this stuff. And so I do think it, that that kind of thing will be a debate because in the last year, tw let's say 12 to 24 months, you started to see really what I would call smart, thoughtful people saying is social media net positive to society or is it a net negative? Um, you know, pre-pandemic, pre-George Floyd, is it is it drowning, you know, drowning people into mental health problems and things like that? I'm not smart enough to know. I tend to take the view that it's like over the arc of history, it'll be in that positive um, with definitely some collateral damage. Um, but, you know, what I, what I would just say is like with the cell phone to capture the George Floyd, uh, you know, horrific event, and the ability to broadcast and share it. Now the world saw it, you know, and that that had the added um, weight of the imagery, the moving imagery, the amount of time it took, uh, the fact that you could sit there and watch it like unfold slowly. Um, it was like a modern day lynching almost, mm -hmm. right? And and so it was different than somebody just getting shot. Not to not to not to. Um, diminish that in importance as well. But I think all those things are getting people to talk about it. And so 
I don't know. I, th- I think it's something we'll, if we had this podcast 10 years from now, we'd be debating. I tend to think it's 51% plus better than not. And, you know, it's exposing more of the reality of the world to people. Yeah. And, you know, we have to sit around and have, we have to face those things um, and the consequences of those things. But you're, so you're kind of on the margins, though, at 51% or 50%. And you're like, well, it could at go. Least, at it, least, yeah. at least, um, uh, yeah, at least. At least, okay. I think I haven't read the literature, but I think there's a lot of literature that brings in the question, like the mental health aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of literature around like just education. Like there are a bunch of people in the country, just like, you know, going to an Arby's, checking in and playing some game on Facebook on their phone. And you can take two sides of the argument. Like, should they be reading or just like spending time with their loved ones or should they be, you know, are they finding joy in it? Who am I to say? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I'll say is like with Twitter, um, you know, my, my father asked me who's on the East coast and he lives now in Connecticut and Connecticut actually had 3,800 to like about a week ago, 3,800 deaths from COVID. And, you know, New York city was a huge vector for that and spreading out into the tri-state area. And he asked me and he was like, Hey, how does the Bay area have less than 500 COVID deaths and Connecticut has, you know, 3,800 and counting. And I said, hey, I don't, I don't really know, but I, I do feel very strongly that in the Bay Area, one of the reasons um, that we have a lower, I can't prove it, but I believe very strongly that one of the reasons we have a lower COVID death rate to date, and fingers crossed it doesn't go up in second and third waves, is that Balaji from Andreessen Horowitz um, it basically went to Twitter and started sharing stuff constantly in mid-January, late January, all through February, and a lot of my friends and I were talking about it and we know Balaji mm-hmm. and, you know, at first I was like, what is he doing? And then eventually, you know, enough of my friends and I, we were talking about it and I was like, okay, I see it coming now. And so, so you know, filter bubbles I began in the Bay filtering area. in place early, yeah. early and I think, you know, he deserves some kind of award. I mean, I really believe that. And I think it's Twitter that gave him that platform to do it, which is open broadcast, you know, short, uh, viral, um, and you know, there I can make the net positive argument, yeah. right? So, so, so it's complicated. The filter bubble thing is real, and I, I, I think so. The way you lay that out it makes sense, right? Like I said, in that kind of ecosystem, I suppose we all do, and so we did see uh, kind of I think representations of what you just shared. Um, there, there's the other side of that as well, which is the kind of the demonstratively negative aspects of filter bubbles, right? And we've got these technology companies like Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat all kind of wading into it, either intentionally or unintentionally. Like over the course of the last few days, we have seen some news where Snap's taken a specific stance on if they're going to promote Trump or president content. Um, Twitter's done sort of the same, or at least they've been more conscientious about certain tweets and how they well, represent let's, them. Let's Facebook talk has about it. some of that. So yeah. Like, well, let's talk about some of that. So uh, a lot of this is just philosophical. So like people, people are going to disagree with this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's good for debate. Let's just talk about Twitter. <clears throat> a political figure, an individual should should be able to have a Twitter account. Um, an individual should be able to create some kind of bot or stitch it together and create a shadow account and, and move things around. But I think where Twitter went off the deep end is that like they were caught in this 
a world of going public and trying to show user growth and engagement. And we don't know how many of these bots are real or not. And so they amplify messages. Um, there's a guy named Clint Watt who sometimes comes on NBC Meet the Press. And he basically, I'm paraphrasing, had this quote a couple of weeks ago where he said in the 2016 election, uh, Russian operatives and their network around the world were creating disinformation and then exporting it into US social networks. What they're doing in this election cycle is actually a lot of the disinformation is being created here on our soil. It's being exported into in these networks, refined, and then re-imported back. And so it just kind of goes, and like people have been, you know, tweeting at Jack, uh, the CEO, for years to just kind of clamp down on the bots and the abuse, and they haven't really done much. Uh, and so I, I don't think there's an argument like I think he's on the wrong side of that argument. So, so, so that I think. So let's dig into that. So I wanna I wanna talk about that and uh, a little bit of just free speech, you know, test here. There's obviously, you know, in tech, the talk is the Zuckerberg approach versus the the Jack approach, and you know, we're not going to talk about individuals here, but we're going to talk about approaches. So, you know, where do you? I mean, or how do you even begin to define, you know, limits of free speech? It sounds like you're a free speech absolutist, which I think is a fair position and it can be a slippery slope, but what, you know, I wouldn't what say in absolutist, your mind, but like, I, I do think that like, if, if the president wants to create um, a Facebook page and use tough language or tough imagery, um, not, not entirely, but I do think they're allowed to do that. I think the problem is the network proliferation of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and like all the sub pages and fake pages and things people use to disseminate this content and manipulate the algorithm. That's the problem. How do you draw? So I line? tend to agree with you. Yeah. I think distribution is the, is the main problem. Sorry. So yeah. You know, Samil, we we joke about this. This is now our, I think, third interview overall phone, and we have this uh, thing where we talk over each other. We're doing our best. So, to our audience, thanks for bearing with us through this. You know, but period for that reason. We we you know we're, we're we all we benefit in the um, end, Samil, because so we drop a bunch of money in the the talk over bucket, and we're up to like eighteen thousand dollars now. So we're we're doing fine. We're going to yeah, donate. You can buy it some good. You, you can buy some meal. good wine with that. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so distribution, let's talk about distribution because I actually think that that is the problem. And so shutting off political ads, for example, um, it's just going to, you know, benefit the people who have huge organic reach already. And, uh, and then on the algorithm stuff, I mean, you want to talk about, you know, algorithms that can be gamed. I mean, LinkedIn, I mean, let's, we don't, we don't even include LinkedIn in the conversation, but they're kind of like the most, you know, pronounced way you can define the problem. I mean, if you put up a video right now, it will get favored in the LinkedIn newsfeed because they just are starving for video content. And, you know, there have to be micro examples of this on Facebook, Twitter, and Snap of things that, you know, people can game. Distribution is the problem. Is that a controversial stance, Samil? And like, what's your, what's no, your reaction because to I, that? I mean, I, I don't know the nuances of the argument to like, really go into the weeds, but I'm just taking a more, what's my own personal constitution? Can can Mitch McConnell create a Twitter account? Sure. Uh, can 
can Mitch McConnell say I disagree with um, this, you know, I support Bill Barr and whatever he does? Sure. Can other people share that content if they want? Sure. Can armies of bots that are like collecting audiences who are like in affinity groups collect and amplify that around? I don't know. You know, um, like it, it, uh, I, I, I think I, my, my knowledge is a little bit limited, but like, I don't know what the legal analogs are of like, you know, the printing press, you can go print something in Cindy and then like go, if you had money, go print it in time and start distributing it. Will people read it? I don't know, but I don't think you could aggregate audience attention back then. Like you can now, um, not enough flyers you Albert, can print. Al- Albert Wenger from Union Square Ventures, who's basically a very brilliant guy, um, has on his blog called Continuations. He had a very interesting proposal of like, you know, enabling some light regulation or like, um, oh no, uh, enabling the social distribution networks to be exempt from that 230 ruling that like Trump threatened in exchange for um, allowing for open APIs of people to like manage and like use their own data, um, which I thought was interesting, right? Because these are closed systems now, not open networks. Where do you lie on Section 230, uh, the Communications Decency Act? Like, are, are, do you believe that these, net- kind of sounds like maybe you believe that these networks are not publishers, they're just platforms? I don't know. I don't know enough to say. Mm-hmm. I think that I believe in using your real name and ID. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe in like monitored pseudonymity. So like Reddit is useful, but it's self-policed in a way such that you can be um, somewhat anonymous or pseudonymous and share your point of view without maybe facing retribution for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like you're not allowed to do hurtful things on there. So there's some self-policing of that network. Yeah. One more thing, I know that Sunil's so, uh, edging for a question, but one more thing, Sunil, before before you jump in, um, like if if you're spending your time on Twitter and you've got a perspective about Twitter, like where are you where are you going to get your news about politics right now? Like where do you spend your time if you want to be well informed? Um, I I listen to podcasts, so I used to I grew up watching like Meet the Press with my dad on Sunday, so I listen been listening to the podcast or audio version of that for like eight years now. Um, and I listen to a few of those. Like I listen to politics Monday with Tamara Keith and Amy Walter on NPR. I listen to Brooke, uh, Brooks and Shields and Brooks NPR on Friday, mm-hmm. it's 15 minutes. I listen to meet the press, although I'm not, I'm not a huge truck. I, I really miss uh, what's his name. Um, God, this is bad. Tim Russert. Uh, and then politics. I don't read that much. I follow like certain journalists on, uh-huh. on Twitter just for headlines, but I don't read their stuff. Got it. Um, and then so, I listen um, to the so yeah, oh, sorry, and I'm I'm the only one not on video in this chat because I look disheveled, so I can't really view view uh, visual cues right now. Uh, another thing, but I want to talk about media because 
You know, when we first met Samil, actually, I don't know if you remember this, but you interviewed me for the MIT Business School magazine in like 2009. Can you believe it was that long ago? Um, So, and you've been a contributor, both, you know, video show and writing to TechCrunch, numerous other publications. And so I know you have a perspective on media and Yasha kind of pivoted this to where I wanted to go. Let's talk about media. Provide your, your just overall assessment of the state of media today in the U.S.? Um, I'll, I'll give you my perspective in a, in hopefully what is a compassionate call to arms to anyone who's in the media industry, which is um, having never been a professional journalist, but understanding how these things work I would really encourage anyone who is a journalist or has ambition to be a journalist to either A, break off and find your own niche and build your own audience and use tools to capture that audience and engage with them. And and very few will be able to do this or B, find another passion uh, because because most most of the way information is being created and shared now um, is done in a way that's relatively free to the end user. And it's not really clear what the value that most, and I say most 95% of people who would be classified as journalists are creating. That's a fair and kind of frank assessment. And let me, can I just dig into that a little bit deeper? Um, Sure. So, uh, okay. So let's talk about, you know, the business model and what you're seeing as a, because, you know, we, what we didn't talk about is you're a venture investor and um, you see a lot of companies. I'm sure you see some media companies and, you know, I think a lot of people and I dabble in media as well. uh, I know well that the ad based model can create, you know, misaligned incentives between the reader and the journalist, uh, i.e. you have to get attention as quickly as possible, come up with provocative headlines. I'll probably come up with one for this podcast, but that's sort of, that's another you know, point. <laughs> Josh and I don't make money off of this. Um, but is there a viable model that you've seen aside from subscription that could work? Because I feel like we're just not thinking about it out of the box. Is it really ad versus subscription and that's it? Is that like our future? <laughs> uh, boy, it's, it's tough. I mean, I think, um, you, you know, just to be comprehensive about your questions, Neil, I, I do think events and, and being a convener and organizing people in real life in a pre-pandemic world creates value. Uh, for people and people are willing to pay for that or sponsor it. Um, it's unclear where that goes right now in the short term, unfortunately. Um, I think having a, a dual business model where like some of the research is done or, or some of the work is done in a bespoke way and then some of it is sliced off and shared more broadly with the public as lead gen. So like you could say like a consulting or research report model. Um, 
obviously with subscription, you know, there's a company called Substack, which is basically doing what I think Medium should have done. Um, and I, I, I'm very bullish on that company, actually. Um, uh, th- then there's like commerce, like a wire cutter model where it is ad based, but it's an affiliate ad. And, um, you know, New York Times looks pretty good in making that acquisition. You could argue today they should have paid 300 million, not 30 million right. for, for wire cutter, uh, given the brand they created. Um, so, you, you know, maybe that's something, an affiliate closer to a purchase, like a JD Power and Associates or, or Consumer Reports. Um, but I, I think the core of it, uh, Sunil, to answer your question, is that the internet made information uh, free, and a lot of journalists um, or, or reporters are there to kind of report, and, and certainly some do, I don't want to say all, but most of them now, because the information is free, they have to give you their opinion. But no one really cares about their opinion. They want to they want to see Mitch McConnell's tweet, not your interpretation of his tweet. Yeah. And is, so that's the issue. Is it like, so is that, um, isn't it maybe another way to say that, like the opinion sharing is not journalism and opinion sharing has taken too much uh, mind share away from journalism? It's just people don't, people don't want it. Yeah. So, so I do think a lot of people go into journalism and this is why I want to be sensitive about it with like an altruistic hmm. uh, uh, intent. And I think their good hearts, uh, you know, it, it's well-intentioned. Yeah. Uh, but then once you're in the belly of the beast um, and then you have to start generating a point of view on top of information and apply your judgment, but you really don't have enough context even about what you're writing about to have judgment or authority on the issue. Um, so like one example I'll, I'll share is like, um, did either of you guys follow this guy, um, Don McNeil from the New York times? I don't No, I don't. Yeah. Well, well, during the COVID peak, especially in New York, like in March and April, he's been a reporter for the New York times for about 20 years or plus just covering infectious diseases and epidemics. And so he covered like SARS, H1N1, He's been all over Asia. And so when Corona, like COVID-19 was coming around and he was explaining what they were doing in Wuhan and like parts of China to like fix this and what we can expect here, that guy was right on the money, you know? And like, when you listen to him, the authoritativeness in his voice and clarity in his thought was like just unbelievable, you know? Um, And so there are just very few people like that you know, and, and in very few organizations that can support somebody like that over decades yeah. to do that work. And I, I would say like for any big brand or anything, they've got to create a farm system for these Don McNeils. Who's the Don McNeil of um, police brutality and, and police and civic engagement? Yeah. Who's the Don McNeil of um, like uh, sports in terms of how, how sports are going to, you know, resume i i don't know yeah well um, corporate journalism isn't going to be a that's not the feeder system what's that corporate journalism that? isn't going to be the the feeder system right no but now i think that like if don was fired from the new york times he could just open up a sub and say hey 
I'm going to cover pandemics around the world. You can pay me five bucks a month hmm. and you, you know, I'm going to just fire this off and you'll get in your email. I mean, I think he would make five to $10 million a year. And so that gets into the unbundling of the value. It gets into the unbundling of the value, you know, like, um, you know, people I do think would be willing to pay for that kind of information where they don't get it anymore. Right. Um, it's just, it's, it's not a lot of people are going to be able to monetize that. Yeah. So we're, uh, we're getting to close to the time that we have with you. I have one more question than Yasha has a wrap up question, which we, which we ask every guest, but, um, my question's around the future. Just right now at this very moment, we have a pandemic, we have, you know, Floyd, we have the stock market kind of going bonkers. It almost feels like a separate reality and the divide between haves and have nots kind of increasing, at least that's the per- perception. Are you optimistic about the, the future in say, let's just describe it in two separate time horizons over the next year and a half. And then sort of over the next three to five years. Uh, over the next year and a half, I'm, I, I, I wish I was more optimistic in general. Um, I tend to, I feel like I see what's going to happen already uh, in the next, you know, nine to 18 months. Um, Paint that picture for us. I, I, I do think Trump has a very good chance of being reelected um, or, or at minimum like Republicans holding power uh, because they have, they just are about winning. They know how to win and play, play different games on the field. And I think the, whatever you want to call it, the Democrats, the opposition, the, you know, they, they kind of move from issue to issue and it's so fractured. Um, so I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but I think that's, that's an unclear, that's like a coin flip right now. Um, I think if, if, if he wins or if he loses, I think there's going to be significant, regardless, there's going to be significant um, unrest uh, as a result of that. It, it could emanate in different places. And so I think when you take that, you know, the, the likelihood of unrest is close to a hundred percent to me. Uh, and when you take the fact that like there, I don't know, let's say conservatively 20 million people who are unemployed. Uh, that's crazy. Uh and, and like, there's not going to be more stimulus. Maybe there's one more. I don't know. Um, so I feel like we're going to go through a couple more downturns. Um, and the, the, the reality on the ground is divorce in the stock market, which is being, you know, people are shifting things from old stock to Zoom and old stock to this, you know, DocuSign. And a lot of computers are making those trades, not people. Um, over three to five years, um, I I am a little more optimistic that hopefully people who are moderate and left of center will finally just say, I would like power and public health and um, 
like to actually uh, pick some core issues for black and Latinos and women and call it a day and like uh, coalesce behind that and then just be quiet about the other stuff till till you actually win an election. Um, and you know, I, 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 I would love anything more than to have Biden win or Biden plus whomever, but it just seems like they're not in it to win it. Um, That's scary. So th- and I, I don't disagree. It's, it's, it's terrifying. It doesn't feel like, uh, you know, Democrats are playing to win right now. And it's highly concerning. It feels like they should be playing offense at the moment, but yeah, at least my perception day- is. Yeah. Sometimes I daydream of like putting Michelle Obama, like, on some remote Hawaiian Island and she just campaigns by Z- via zoom. And like, I think she would win, but like how many people can just go do that from the top of like with name recognition? I don't know. Like we don't, we don't have that bench. Yeah. Yeah. The, the left is a, a little bit more like a pickup team. It's like, maybe they're going to win, maybe not, but it's, uh, they're certainly playing against the, uh, the, the team that's organized that has, people in positions and they know what they're doing. It is a little scary. Hey, um, this has been a pretty awesome and wide ranging conversation. I want to set you up for kind of this one question. And then I got a one hot take before we we do our last question. Um, So the last question is uh, on the social networks that you spend your time, maybe let's stick to Twitter, uh, a recommended follow. So before let you think about that for a second before um, let's give us a hot take on politics, like who's going to be Biden's pick for his VP. Oh, that's an interesting parlor game this time because you could see, uh, you know, that person potentially vaulting in the power sooner. Um, I I would like to see somebody um, honestly like an executive from the military who's had government experience. Mm -hmm. Um, who's like an operator. Um, and I just want to, I want them to be able to like get stuff done. And if they become president in the first year or something, um, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't think anyone was ascending in the, um, in the debates in the democratic debates. Everyone was just kind of, ugh, yeah, you know, they, no one, no one had the hunger and the clarity of mind. I will give Andrew Yang credit. He at least had original ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, th- I like Mayor Pete a lot, but he just uh, couldn't grab it. And I think was like a little too corporate in his speak. Yeah. Um, so, so I'd like someone who, I don't know, maybe has been around the block and has seen some tough things and can kind of tell everyone like, here's the tough stuff we need to do. And like the other stuff is going to have to wait. I dig that. So somebody that wasn't a part of the, the primary process from the military. Oh, for sure. All right. For I got sure. you. Cool. All right. So the, the last question is, um, who is a recommended follow to the listeners of this podcast on Twitter? Yeah, I think in, in you know, for your audience here is kind of Bay area, uh, folks and, and kind of future of Bay area. Um, I think someone who who tweets a lot about the Bay Area 
um, is this guy named Matt Brinzina. Um, he's works in tech and I want to, I don't know him personally, but we have a lot of mutual friends and we've emailed before. I think his name is B R E Z I N A Brinzina. Mm-hmm. And I think he, uh, at least from Twitter and from what I hear from friends kind of embodies this idea of being very humble and solutions focused about fixing what's happening in his own backyard first before telling the rest of the world and country what to do. Uh, and so I admire that because I think we have a lot of people who do the opposite. Awesome. We appreciate that. Um, thank you for joining us today. This was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you guys. And uh, yeah, it was good to, good to meet you, Yasha. And thanks for the opportunity to know. So what do you think about the future of media after having that conversation? I mean, he, you know, Samil was pretty direct with how, um, how he thinks the media is doing. I, uh, I honestly feel uh, a bit disheartened <laughs> about the future. And I think I'm trying to wrap my head around it, but I also think it's important to get a perspective that's as pointed as his. And, uh, it's, it's good to kind of file away, but, but I gotta tell you, I'm feeling a little bit, I'm feeling a little bit off, like not as hopeful as I, as I usually am. You know, one of the things that it just got me thinking about was this notion of Twitter journalism versus regular journalism. Of course, you know, he brought up the, the Balaji tweets that led him to, you know, kind of prepare for the pandemic and all of that. I mean, there is a flip side to that, which is, you know, Twitter, Twitter journalism has a lot of downsides. But in the Balaji example, it's actually funny. I actually started prepping after I read Balaji tweets as well. <laughs> I like it. Well, I mean... The, the future is going to be what it is. So I think we just kind of got to embrace it, open arms and do the things we can to make it a little bit better and better and better. I really enjoyed today's conversation. I did as well. And if you like the podcast, rate us five stars wherever you're listening. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley today. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as Sunil and I enjoyed recording it, please go back to the application you found this podcast on, rank us five stars, leave us a comment. We read every single one. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley.